Welcome to the Fabulously Keto podcast aimed at improving health, vitality and quality of life. Eating real food in a ketogenic lifestyle. I'm Jackie Fletcher and I'm based in the UK. And I'm Louise Reynolds, an Aussie currently based in Bangkok, Thailand. Each week we will be bringing you guests who share their stories and discuss a range of topics which we hope will improve your health and well-being. Many of the guests, like us, came to Keto for Weight Loss and have stayed for their well-being, numerous health benefits and because they are living their best lives. We hope you will be inspired to incorporate these ideas into your own health journey so that you can feel better than you ever have before. Thinking about starting keto? Take a listen to episode number two, What is Keto and How to Start? Welcome to the Fabulously Keto podcast and this is episode number 05. This week we have Dr. Zoe Harkin, PhD, and Zoe is very well known in the real food movement. Um, what she actually really brings is a fresh air of being critical. And there she was able to, with her contribution from not only her PhD, but certainly her movement and um, involvement on Twitter, with really bringing to light um, a critical sense of what is nutrition policy. I had the good fortune, Jackie, of actually meeting Zoe, well, as we'll hear in her interview, at the 2017 Low Carb Breckenridge um, Conference and had the good fortune of sort of standing next to her in the ladies' loo line and, um, <laughs> yeah, and I just sort of had a bit of a fangirl moment as you do in um, yeah, as we we're waiting for um, waiting for the loo. But yeah, certainly have been very fortunate. Uh, we were at the 2019 Public Health Collaboration Conference in London to um, to hear one of her presentations, and she's always such a, a breath of fresh air and yeah, really brings to light a lot of those things that we take take for granted. Mm, yeah. So let me tell you a little bit about. Zoe. Dr. Zoe Harcom is an independent author, researcher and speaker in the field of diet, health and nutrition. Dr. Zoe Harcom is a Cambridge University graduate with a BA and MA in economics and maths. Zoe enjoyed a successful career in blue chip organisations before leaving corporate life in 2008 to pursue her passion. Her early career involved international roles in management consultancy, manufacturing and marketing in global organisations, from FMCG to telecoms, before specialising in personnel and organisation. At the peak of her career, Zoe was Vice President for Human Resources for Europe, Middle East and Africa. Having written three books between 2004 and 2007 while being Head of People, Zoe left employment to research obesity full-time. This culminated in the publication in 2010 of the obesity epidemic. What caused it? How can we stop it? Zoe returned to full-time education in 2012 to complete a PhD in public health nutrition awarded in March 2016. Her thesis was entitled An Examination of the Randomized Control Trial and Epidemiological Evidence for the Introduction of Dietary Fat Recommendations in 1977 and 1983, a Systematic Review and Meta-Analysis. A number of peer-reviewed articles have emanated from this work. 
The first was the 64th most impactful paper in any discipline in 2015. Zoe was an independent board member for Cardiff Metropolitan University between 2006 and 2012. She was also an independent board member for the Welsh National Health Service between 2009 and 2012. Zoe lives with her husband and rescue animals in the Welsh countryside, surrounded by food, aka sheep, hens and cows. Welcome Zoe to the Fabulously Keto podcast. It's fabulous to have you on the show. Thank you very much for having me. Maybe start off by telling us, we like to ask everyone, where in the world are you? Tell us where you are. I'm in South Wales in the UK and it's uh, not bad today actually. We had one of the coldest bank holidays on record um, just yesterday and we've got rain coming in but that's Wales for you so it's a fairly typical day. Yeah, we, we, we've we been cold. I've been having my winter clothes back on this week. Yes, and unlike Louise who's still in 36 degrees and 78% humidity and it's rainy season. So um, yes, we're, we're sharing the, the bank holiday rainy season with you today. <laughs> Zoe, tell us a little bit how you got started in the low carb world. Um, well, I mean, I guess first I think of myself in the real food world rather than the low carb world. Um, but the real food world ends you up in the low carb world, which not everybody seems to realise. Um, so how did I get into all of this? I um, give you a, a sort of speedy history. My very first interest in food and its power over the body was when my brother developed type 1 diabetes when we were both teenagers. And immediately you realise the impact of glucose and its sort of counter insulin and I would help him inject just so that he didn't get um, overused on, on the sites that he could reach. Um, and that's pretty dramatic when you when you experience that as a teenager. Um, then became very interested in diet um, while I was at Cambridge University. It was around the, 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 um, uh, the, the time that we were just starting to see obesity take off a bit in the UK because it was um, we were behind the US. So I think the US were, were taking off in the 70s, late 70s, exactly around the time the dietary guidelines, what a coincidence. Mm. And the UK, it was much more late 80s, early 90s, that things were starting to become visible. But then it just exploded throughout the 90s so rapidly to the point that 25% of men and 25% of women were clinically obese by the end of the last century. So I just became fascinated by obesity as a general concept, because I don't know anyone who wants to be obese, and nobody is setting out to, to be overweight, let alone obese, and yet this was just exploding right in front of our eyes. So I was trying to understand that as a conundrum, and then had a perfectly normal career um, as an HR director, worked at very high level, um, blue chip companies worked globally, and was constantly interested in, I guess, the health of employees, because uh, I ended up in HR, despite having done a lot of other disciplines, you know, the health and well-being of employees and um, what helped employees to be at their best in, in all senses of, of them as a human being. Um, and I just always stayed interested in diet, obesity, food, and then got the opportunity to leave corporate life in the crash that happened around 2008. I mean, gosh, that's going to make uh, what we're about to go into look like uh, it was a trial run or something. Um, but got the opportunity to leave and I thought, right, I'm going to do it. I want to see if I can make my passion, my vocation, 
And here I am 11 years later and, and have been able to do that, thankfully. So um, for me, it, it started out as an interest in diet and obesity driven very much by a background in, interest in glucose, insulin and diabetes. Um, and I'm, I'm very much now um, a proponent of eating real food, not eating junk. And I'm afraid that includes low carb junk as well. I'm, I'm not a fan of replacement um, low carb food any more than I am replacement low calorie food. I think if we start out by eating what has been put on the planet for us to eat and choosing that food for the nutrients it provides, we can't go far wrong. Mm. I think we both are real food people as well. You know, I don't do a lot of, I don't do any junk food actually. I mean, where it, when, when I, I do interviews sometimes and you get radio presenters saying, oh, it's so difficult. And we just last week we heard eggs are bad for you, now they're good for you, coffee's bad for you, coffee's good for you. Oh, we just can't navigate our way through all of this. It's just too difficult. It's like, it's not difficult at all. It's, it's really so not difficult. Just rip up everything that's ever been written on obesity diet and healthy eating. And you only need three pencils. Number one is eat real food. And you can teach a five-year-old. I mean, there's some idiots on the internet like, oh, what's real food? Um, you, you can teach a five-year-old what food, real food is. If it comes from a field rather than a factory, if it comes from the ground, it's real food. You know what real food is. Stop being an ass. Um, number two, choose that real food for the nutrients it provides. And this is something that we're not taught at school and we should be. So why do we need to eat? Because there are essential nutrients. What does essential mean in nutrition? It means the things that you must eat. Your body can't make them. What are they? Okay, so there's essential fats. Omega-3 and omega-6, and the omega-3 needs to come in the right form. And I'm sorry, vegans, but that means it needs to come from animal foods, particularly oily fish. There are complete proteins that come from animal foods. Good luck mixing them in plant foods. There are vitamins, 13, and there are minerals, approximately 16 to 20, that we need to get hold of. And then other strange things that don't fit into those categories like choline. And we need to get those. So choose that real food for the nutrients it provides then drives you down the road of, well, where do I find those nutrients? And I was a vegetarian for many years, 20 years, lapsed into veganism during that time. And I didn't know that I couldn't get what I needed from pure plant foods, that you don't get B12, you don't get retinol, you don't get D3, you don't get EPA and DHA, the form of omega-3s that we need. You don't get heme iron, the most absorbable find, um, type of iron. And, and you really struggle to get things like calcium, um, and probably some other nutrients as well. And we're just not taught that. So choose that food for the nutrients it provides. It drives you down the path of choosing animal foods. So when governments across the world say base your meals on starchy foods, that's wrong. They should be saying base your meals on animal foods. But as we know in this field, this demonization of animal foods and this eulogy to plant foods is just incessant and growing and getting more and more frightening by the day. And then the third principle is eat no more than three times a day, particularly if you have an issue with weight and or diabetes. I mean, I, I do eat more than that, but I've got a BMI of 20, so why the hell shouldn't I? Mm. But it's probably still only four times a day. And it's only because I've added daily chocolate mousse into my repertoire since this bloody lockdown. So uh, <laughs> I feel entirely mm. justified in doing, doing something fun. Um mm-hmm nonsense goes on around us yeah 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 i was going to say that i i introduced jackie to melting a, a square of dark chocolate and blending it with some of the delicious um rotor's clotted cream 
So when I was in the UK and um, I discovered my my liking for Rhoda's clotted cream. So um, yeah, yeah. why not? I was going to ask how you how do you do your chocolate? Yes. Yeah. Yeah, it's, um, we, we joke it's basically a chocolate omelette. So um, there's a lot of dark chocolate. Um, we use 85%. Um, I, I make a double batch so it lasts a few days. And we, there's, there's four eggs in there, 450 grams, four and a half bars of 85% dark chocolate. Um, what else is there? A couple of teaspoons of vanilla, four tablespoons of dark rum, um, some coffee, about 120 ml of coffee um what else goes in there oh uh 500 ml of cream um double cream um i think that's it so it all gets um you melt the chocolate you whisk separate eggs and whites and put the rum and the vanilla in with the egg yolks whisk all of that out add the melted chocolate add the coffee separately whisk the egg whites then pour that into the chocolatey mixture and mix it all up and then mix the cream and add them all together and I pop it, I've done a little tweak on this, I pop it in these little espresso pots. Mm. So you get in about 100 ml in your little espresso pot. And um, that that's nice for me mid-morning. We get up really early, so I've just had one mid-morning for me is about 9.30. Um, and then I'll have something for lunch and then dinner at 5.30. It'll be done by 5.30 and then I won't eat again until 6.30 probably tomorrow morning. So there's a long time when I'm not eating. So again, four times a day is not a problem. Yeah, great. Mm. So is that part of your, say, a time-restricted eating in, in that sense that you're giving your body? Yeah, it, it just sort of happened that way. We um, we, we saw Dawn Leman talking about it at Breckenridge in 2017. And one of the beauties of going to conferences, which is why I'm really not happy all of these sort of online conferences, it's like we need to stop that as soon as possible and just get back to normal, normal, no new normal. Let's, you know, let's be first, let's get out there, let's have a conference, come at your own risk, sign a disclaimer, whatever nonsense, but we need to get back to meeting in person and being able to see each other's presentations and engage in those. I, I saw Dawn Lamont talking about the fact that there was some evidence emerging for benefit of um, about a 13-hour overnight fast and and it makes sense at many levels that just giving your digestive system a rest for more of the day when you're not just seems like a really good idea um when, when you actually know what happens when you put something in your mouth and what you set off in terms of saliva enzymes and digestion going on in the stomach when protein that you picked up and what then happens further down the line with the lymphatic system and colon and i mean it's just it's unreal what our body does what it what it is so capable of doing the minute we put something in our mouth but i think if we were taught that better and with more respect when we were at school hopefully people would think twice before just constantly stuffing put stuff in their mouths every time you graze on a grape you might think oh that's not such a big problem i'm near the grape bowl you know here's one and here's another one and here's another one here Every time you do that, if you had any idea what has just been set off in this magnificent machine called the body, I really hope you treat it with more respect and just not do that quite so often and with quite so much that taxes it. So I just think whether you're diabetic or obese or not, just respect this amazing body that you've got a little bit more and it will last a bit longer for you. Mm, Definitely. So it's interesting you mentioned about 2017 at Breckenridge because that's where I met you. 
for the yeah the first time uh, we were actually standing in the ladies loo line and I think um, I sort of broached the topic about you're talking about your PhD and then we got talking about the trauma of our supervisory experience so um, <laughs> but you're right yeah I know but it, it really was um, you're right those conferences certainly the collegiality the yeah. spiritedness of the common the common mind the hive mind and um yeah certainly the the knowledge and uh, i know jackie and i've had the privilege of um we were together at um, the phc conference in 2018 where we 19 19, uh, 19 yeah. i keep on getting confused and it's really about the community and the community movement that we're seeing now which you're, you're very much we you know one of the gurus and you've brought a criticalness um, to that space. And maybe you could tell us a little bit more about your PhD studies because you examined the literature using a particular framework. But we, I think I said to Jackie, your contribution was you've given us this criticality, you know, to question and to question, you know, the messages that we're getting, question the literature. And certainly your PhD was part of that process. Oh, thank you. That's very kind. I mean, I, I, I guess I kind of, I got to the point that I didn't, I didn't trust anything. Um, when, when, when you start taking away one table leg and then you just realize that the whole thing falls down. And I remember back in, um, the mid noughties reading some of Dr. Malcolm Kendrick's work. And it was just the first time that some really established things I'd questions. So I remember reading his brilliant, brilliant book, The Great Cholesterol Con. What do you mean LDL is not even cholesterol? It's a low density lipoprotein. It's a carrier of cholesterol and it carries lots of other things. And HDL is not cholesterol and it's not good and LDL is not bad. And oh my goodness, what else have we been lied to about? And I started writing to places like Public Health England saying, where's the evidence base for five a day? Um, and then of course you realize there is none. And I was in the process of writing my sort of first heavyweight book at the time, The Obesity Epidemic, What Caused It and How Can We Stop It, which came out in 2009. And when you go looking and you realise there is no evidence base for five a day and there is no evidence base for 10% saturated fat or 30% dietary fat. And why that became of, of such great interest to me was it was back to understanding diet and obesity and I don't understand why two thirds of people are overweight and a third of people are obese when literally nobody wants to be. It's, it's not like smoking when a lot of people smoke, well, actually fewer people smoke than are obese, but people enjoy smoking. It's, it's addictive. Um, but there is an enjoyment to it. Nobody wants to be obese. It just didn't make sense. So then I would start looking at, well, when did we become obese? And it was in the last three decades of the last century that it just exploded. And what happened? Did we suddenly start eating more and doing less? No, we didn't. I mean, if anything, the data in the UK particularly show pretty much the opposite. We we eat a lot less in terms of declared calorie intake over the last three decades. We do a lot more. I remember when I was a child, I never ever saw a jogger. I mean, did you ever see a jogger? No. Nobody mm. was jogging. I mean, no. <laughs> We were take we were taking the Mickey out of the the joggers in California that would jog around and exactly. you never saw anyone out doing exercise. Yeah, nobody was a member of the gym. My parents were both naturally sporty. My mum was a PE teacher. They both played team sports and they did squash. Um, but they would play hockey on a Saturday. They would play a squash match during the week. They weren't jogging to keep fit in between before the hockey match. They just mm. weren't fit. You know, they were just doing normal stuff and. 
walking to school or whatever. So it's just this whole how how did we get this obesity epidemic? What what happened? And one of the things that you can't help but observe if you look at this whole arena is that we changed our dietary guidelines. So it 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 coincided with the obesity epidemic. So the word coincide I think is is really interesting because coincide also um, is part of coincidence. So was it a coincidence or was it a coincidence? You know, is this related in some way, this changing of the dietary guidelines? And I think it is because I can't see anything else that happened around that time. And because it makes sense when you tell entire populations to take their uh, macronutrients in the form of at least 55% carbohydrate, it makes sense that we're going to make them fat because that's the one macronutrient that we don't actually even need. And it's, it's just not going to be helpful. So then I, I became really fascinated by some of the studies at the time, particularly the seven country study. Um, I, I could almost have done a, a PhD on the seven country study alone. But there was a bigger question to answer, I realized when I started going through the literature. And you do a lot of background reading before you even sign up to doing a PhD and, and realize what the topic is going to be. And I realized that I wanted to understand, we ended up with 55% carbohydrate by default. Okay, so and this is how it happens. And, and this is important for people to understand. There's only three things that we eat, carbohydrate, protein, and fat. And protein is about 15% of any natural diet. It just is. I can give you the academic references to that theoretically. And empirically, the pure study was a beautiful empirical study of it. It just is, trust me. Unless you're going to do some of Ted Naiman's kind of high protein stuff or duke and diet, it just is. So the minute you set a fat restriction of 30%, you have automatically told people to eat 55% of their diet in the form of carbohydrate because that's the only thing that's left. And that's what's, that's what happened. And it's really important to understand that we didn't tell people to eat 55% of their diet in the form of carbohydrate because we knew it was healthy. We didn't even know it was safe. It was just the inevitable consequence of telling people to have no more than 30% of their diet in the form of dietary fat. So I wanted to understand why did we set those guidelines and we set them in the name of heart health and we set them basically in the name of men and heart health and it does all go back to the seven countries study because none of the randomized controlled trials as I later found out at the time actually said we should set any restriction on fat in fact they were pretty much concluding the opposite but the seven countries study set out to test whether there was an issue with total fat. It actually found that there wasn't. Not many people know that. The seven country study actually concluded there's no issue on total fat, but we went ahead and set a total fat limit anyway. But the seven country study said, but I think there's an issue, or there's an association with men dying from heart disease and intake of saturated fat. But intake of saturated fat at the time, he was talking about things like cake and ice cream. So again, we were making the same mistakes then that we do today. But I, I needed to understand what is the evidence base for having set those two dietary fat guidelines, no more than 30% of your calories in the form of total fat, no more than 10% in the form of saturated fat. And the most robust um, technique uh, for evidence for doing that is what we call systematic review and meta-analysis. That's top of the evidence pyramid. A systematic review just means looking for all the studies, not cherry-picking, not picking the ones that suit you, but looking at all of them. And then meta-analysis is just a statistical technique to pull those studies together, all the findings of those studies together, 
on the basis that that should be more powerful than just looking at any one study alone. And, and it is, it's got some limitations, but it is the best that we've got when it comes to evidence. Um, and so that, that essentially was my PhD, looking at the, I, I guess the, the then really novel aspect of it, the bit that Prof Notes really liked when I met him first in 2015 and the first paper from the PhD had just come out and um, he, he, he said he just loved that I went back to look at what the evidence was at the time because everybody else was looking at what, what's the evidence today but that's not the point because we set these guidelines back in 1977 in the US and 1983 in the UK and what was the evidence at the time? Then you can do the second part of the PhD which is okay, we're not knowing 1983, we're in 2016 when I was finishing my PhD, what's the evidence now? But it was looking at it then, both for RCTs and epidemiological evidence, and then it was looking at it now again for RCTs and epidemiological evidence. So it was the complete review of those two guidelines. And to cut a long story short, there's no evidence, there just isn't any evidence for either. Mm. Yes, it's a bit sobering to think that 40 years of our lives have been we've been given misinformation and led to believe something that actually isn't yeah and the consequences that it's had that's what really upsets me and there was a bit in my final wrap-up paper where I said you know if we'd have done this and got away with it that would have been one thing um but we haven't got away with it we really haven't I mean I just why is there not a class action suit going on to UK and Australian and New Zealand and American and Canadian governments saying your advice basically made me fat and sick and 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 it directly did and you gave me type two diabetes why why are we not suing the governments just saying there was no evidence and you got it wrong and there's been catastrophic consequences hopefully one day we will but why is it not happening right now I think because people still believe it they still believe that that is the right advice I know then. They have got no basis for that, but they 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 believe that 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 to be true. Yeah, and it, and it's getting stronger. I mean, with all the eat Lancet and the eat badly plate in the UK, the plant based movement and these stupid burgers or impossible burgers, whatever they call themselves, impossible foods, um, just getting stronger and more organised and more aggressive towards real food, low carb, whatever uh, we want to call it. Um, we're we're under attack more than ever. We had a good period, I think, around 2015, maybe up as the gap between the 2015 and the 2020 guidelines. I think we had a good period and we made good use of the internet. We're, we're back under siege now, make no mistake. Hmm. And the thing that gets me is we've got here through millions of years by not eating the foods that we're be, that are being pushed on us over the last 125 years. Have we lost our ability to think and say, is this true? I don't know. It, and that's an interesting one. And it's an interesting one in the current environment because the, the most liked tweet I think I've ever put out, I, I don't even know what it's up to now. It's probably about 5,000 likes or something ridiculous. And I, I say something like, I don't know what has shocked me more. The fact that we've lost more freedoms than at any other time in, in history. And I mean a couple of people came back and said, oh, we've had war. It's like, yeah, we had more freedom during war than a lot of us have got now or have had over the past five months. During war, we were still able to go to work. In fact, we were encouraged to go to work. We needed to go to work. We didn't cancel exams. Children went to school. They might have been evacuated and they might have gone to a countryside school, but they still went to school. 
and we didn't have to stay within a certain distance from home. We turned the lights off at night because we didn't want to get bombed. You know, the advice was sensible. We all bought into it. 100% we were with it. But my tweet said, I don't know what's, what's shocked me more. The fact that we've got a, the, the biggest affront on freedoms that we've ever experienced or the fact that people are wanting it and demanding more and, and more than happy to go along with it. And, 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 and most of the replies that I got were, it's the second one that shocks me more than the first one by far. It's definitely people's reactions to this taking away of freedom has generally shocked people more than the taking away of freedom in itself. I, I, I agree. I have just been gobsmacked, speechless, astonished at the lack of thinking among my fellow human beings, their preparedness to listen to what they're being told, to not question things. And it just sort of does my head in at every level because I'm thinking, I know from Twitter that you don't like Donald Trump and you don't like Boris Johnson. I know that from Twitter. Twitter's pretty left wing. Twitter doesn't like these characters, but you are doing, particularly in the UK, you are doing what Boris Johnson is telling you to do. And there is a great um, Simon Dolan's work where he's managed to get access to some of the SAGE committee minutes from the early days um, by putting in his legal action. And there's a classic um, statement that I think is one of the pinned tweets on one of the barristers who's quite vocal in all of this. And, and the um, statement extract from the minute says, people are not scared enough. People uh, are not fearing this enough. We need to do more to make them scared because then they'll do what we need them to do. Hmm. It was absolutely deliberate that we were going to scare the life out of people and then they would be compliant. And that is what has been done. But why did you fall for it when you knew that was the stated intent? It's, it's like Boris Johnson would go out and say, vote for me. And 50% of the country wouldn't vote for him. So why did 99% of the country say, yeah, that's okay. I'm just going to, I'm, I'm just going to absolutely follow this advice. I'm, I'm not going to question it. I'm not going to think, well, hey, actually, we're no different to Sweden and they haven't locked down. So, What's going on here? We just haven't had this intelligent, independent thinking, questioning of what's actually going on. And then you get to the point where Boris Johnson powers that be say, okay, it's safe to come out now. No, it's not. <laughs> if it wasn't safe yesterday, it wasn't safe today. You know, this is not a everyone is okay to come out or everyone has to stay inside. This was, this is what drove me so nuts about this. We knew by the time time that the UK went into lockdown, we knew who was at risk from this and who wasn't. We knew already from stuff that had come from China and Paris, and then particularly Italy, because that was the nation closest to us in terms of, of the type of person um, that we were as Europeans. And we knew it was particularly lethal in people over 80, the average age of mortality in, in Italy was 81, and we knew that it was strongly related to comorbidities. And, and we knew all of this, and we knew that men were more susceptible than females, and we knew surprisingly that smokers were actually not more at risk than non-smokers. We knew a hell of a lot, and we knew that BMI was in there and diabetes was in there. So why did we lock up healthy people? Why did we lock up young people when they had more chance of being killed on the way to school than being killed by this going into school? Why didn't we let the, the healthy people get out there and do their part, do your bit for the 
split spirit. Get out there. Stay going to work. You're going to get it. You might be one of the COVID long haulers. Life's a bitch. You might get Lyme's disease walking through a field. I'm sorry. Life has some risks. Know the risks. And then are you prepared to take them? Are you prepared to, to, to go into work knowing you're not going to die from this, but you might get some post-viral fatigue syndrome? Um, tell people the risk. This is your risk of dying from heart disease over the next year. This is your risk of dying from cancer. This is your risk of dying in a car accident. This is your risk of dying from COVID. Let people make informed judgments and say, right, I'm under any kind of risk age. I am female. I have no, no comorbidities. I'm really happy to get out there. And, and as for keeping people in who've already had the virus, I think this is going to be like any other virus. It's going to give a lot more immunity than they're claiming at the moment, but you're certainly going to be immune for the foreseeable future. So why the hell does Matt Hancock or Boris Johnson have to socially distance from anyone else? They're not at risk of hurting anyone else at the moment. They were four months ago, but they're not at the moment. Mm-hmm. Um, my um, stepson and his girlfriend, she works frontline A&E. She got it uh, just before lockdown. Uh, got a viral load, uh, quite a decent one, as the healthcare workers unfortunately were. So she got a pretty nasty bout of it she was still back working night shifts within six days so she's working with the most vulnerable but she couldn't go to a supermarket at that time uh, because she was in lockdown where she could go only once a week or whatever nonsense was essential travel only and she was going in and working with with people in a and a all the time throughout that i mean we, we just made the most insane uninformed unscientific decisions and if it wasn't safe for you to go out in March because you were elderly and had at least one comorbidity, and particularly BMI over 40, we know that has been um, particularly um, particularly an issue for bad outcomes from COVID, particularly from New York data, where they've had the obese people that we have, the numbers that we have been able to study. Then make your own decision and say, do you know what? For as long as this is around, I, I don't want to go out. Um, don't just come out on July the 14th or whenever the hell it was when someone said, okay, it's safe to come out now. Just, we've got to take our health into our own hands. And I think maybe it's not been a coincidence that a number of people in our world have been some of the most vocal challenges of this because we're used to challenging. We're used to saying, hang on a second, the dietary guidelines are pants. So why is our advice on this any better? I'm going to question this in just the same way that I would question the dietary guidelines so maybe it has been more people in our world like Ivor and um trying to think of some of the others uh, I has been one of the particular ones and mm. I got, got some attacks in the early days for speaking out on it and I went a little bit quiet for a while and then it's just like damn it I'm I'm not going to go quiet on this and if you don't like what I've got to say on it then unfollow me and, and go and be a sheep or whatever but I'm sorry I can't not speak out on something that is actually way more important than anything related to diet. This is our entire way of living that is under challenge at the moment and and people just don't seem to realise what is going on. Yeah. I think there's I think there's a, a natural thing when it comes to I suppose your criticality and that's obviously about this policy, what I'd call a policy vacuum. And, you know, the vacuum of policy around nutrition guidelines which you're saying, you know, rightly so for any PhD, is not evidence-based. And it's the, that criticality that you're saying about public policy now that there was a bit of a, I suppose, a bit of a 
the criticality here is about the benevolence and how that's being sold to us as not so much on the eat well plate, you know, eat your veggies, go five and two, but um, it's in your best interest. But the benevolence comes from uh, certainly in Australia with the Emergency Act, um, the Public Health Acts that they've put in place. So they're coming at it from this is in your best interest to do that. So um, And there's laws to back this up, unlike the nutrition guidelines. Yeah, yeah. Um, that's, that's how it's being sold, you know. Yeah. You, we have this emergency act in place and now the, um, the public health office is obviously the people that are deeming it unsafe for you to, to go out. And it's, it's, not, it's not in our best interest. Mm-hmm. I mean, look at the numbers in Australia. Um, and I remember looking at them recently. I, I can't remember them off the top of my head, but it's something like 50,000 deaths every year. And at the time I looked at it, there, there were 100 yeah. deaths with COVID. It's like, is, is this mm. insane? I mean, I think Australia has shocked mm. me more than anywhere else in the world. This is not in our best interest. I mean, the, the numbers have been coming out since March. There's been a guy in the UK, Professor Carol um, Sikora, has been really vocal on cancer. He's a, um, a, an oncologist, cancer expert, and he's been really vocal on cancer even before the lockdown, just before the lockdown was introduced in the UK. He wrote one of his first articles in the Daily Mail, which is one of the most read newspapers, I think globally, not just in the UK. And he was putting the numbers out then saying, shutting down all the rest of the National Health Service, which is what we did for five months, and there's not much evidence that it's back up and running now for anything much other than COVID. Um, you, you're not getting your hip operations done and your eyes, um, cataracts and other orthopedic operations. A lot of people have cancer surgery cancelled. People have died already. Who would you to have mm. cancer operations in, in March and mm. April? And it's as if it's been okay to just sacrifice all of those people. And people starting to model this as saying, we are going to lose more people through our reaction to COVID than we lost from COVID itself. And here's the important thing to remember. The people that we lost to COVID were largely unavoidable. When you get a novel virus, when something new comes down the line, there are going to be deaths. There just are. It's unavoidable. When Ebola comes out, we can contain it as much as we can when it breaks out in Africa, but there are going to be deaths. And there were deaths from SARS-CoV-1, there were deaths from MERS, there are still occasionally deaths from MERS. SARS-CoV-1 died out. Um, very interestingly, SARS-CoV-2 could die out. There's every possibility that it could just die out as SARS-CoV-1 does. Um, viruses are, are perfectly capable of dying out. In fact, it's one of their, um, their characteristics. So I absolutely do not believe that we have done the greater good for humanity, even on deaths. Mm -hmm. Because lockdown wasn't, certainly in the UK, it wasn't positioned as it's going to save a single death other than what lockdown was for was we need to make sure we don't overwhelm the NHS. Because what we don't want is the scenario when the NHS is beyond capacity and somebody dies who could have been saved but for the fact we didn't have a bed or we didn't have a ventilator or we didn't have a nurse to treat that person. Now, we never hit 50% capacity in the UK at the peak of the COVID situations. All those 19-girl hospitals that were fantastically built really quickly to increase capacity and get ready for the overspill, they were empty throughout the entire time. So 
well done UK, we more than achieved what lockdown set out to achieve. The peak in the UK passed, the peak was the 8th of April. We should have unlocked very, very quickly. I don't think we should have locked down at all, but that's probably quite contentious. Um, we definitely should have locked down as soon as we realised that we passed the peak, peak on the 8th of April and say, right, we now need to get the NHS back to dealing with, yes, the COVID cases that are still coming in of people who caught COVID three weeks earlier. Um, but we need to get the NHS back to dealing with particularly cancer. And mm. there's a paper that I saw recently on heart deaths, uh, basically saying where the hell did all the heart incidents go? Because people weren't turning up at accident and emergency having heart attacks. They were staying away, so they died. Uh, or they had a heart attack, um, and it was a not fatal one, but the next one is going to be fatal, and nothing has been done in between. Um, so they're going to die from a heart attack in October as a result of not going into A&E in April. And, and that's before we've got the suicides and the domestic violence and whatever else has happened. Mental health. Yeah. Mm. So we're not callous. We get treated on Twitter as if people saying we should not be in lockdown. Oh, you're callous. You don't care about people dying. We care about people dying as much as the next person. In fact, I'd argue we care about it more because we're actually looking at the numbers and saying lockdown never was intended to save anyone other than that one person who might have died in ICU, and we avoided that. So where is the evidence that lockdown actually saved a single person? And, and it's like, oh, but you know, Neil Ferguson said 500,000 people would die. Yeah, mm. look at Neil Ferguson's track record on viruses from foot and mouth disease. Um, Neil Ferguson is particularly loathed in Wales because he was single-handedly responsible for the culling of thousands, tens of thousands of animals because of his bad modelling. And it's because of his bad modelling that England, Wales, Scotland, Ireland, US, Canada, much of the rest of the world went into lockdown with this domino effect because of his catastrophic modelling. And I think that people who die from cancer should be able to sue him personally, as well as business people who've lost their livelihoods and people who've lost their jobs and people who commit suicide mm. because they've lost their job. I mean, I, I don't even know where to start on what we have done to each other during all of this and the fact that we have clapped for it and applauded it and welcomed it and even asked for more. I've never had such a low view of my fellow species, my fellow mankind at the moment. It's, um, it's not been nice actually and I'm not, I'm not in a happy place with the world at the moment. I'm in a happy place with me and my family and my loved ones and people around me who who are still thinking and still behaving as I think human beings should. But I must admit, my view of the world at the moment is as low as it's ever been. Mm. Well, that's that's a really sad place for you to be in, in terms of you know what what the government is saying that they're doing benevolently. You know, the benevolence and the the maleficence and the non-maleficence of this particular. Um, the ethics, I suppose, the public health ethics was this was going to be in your best interest. You know, this is what we're trying to do for you and trying to save save our fellow man. But the, the, I suppose the yeah, the best thing we could have done yeah. on that was for the healthy people to get outside, which is what Sweden did. Mm. In Sweden, nobody has to go outside. This is what I don't get. Mm. You can lock yourself down forever for the rest of your life, um, and some people do that. They they don't really want to participate in the world, so they go and live on a. Um, they, Violent. Yeah. <laughs> I've got friends in the village whose daughter has long been living in some kind of commune down in West Wales and 
um, they grow their own stuff and they build their own eco huts and whatever. And, and really good luck to them. What a fantastic thing to do if that's what you want to do. But the best thing that healthy people could have done for their fellow humans when all of this started was mm. to take one for the team. Get out there. We're going to get this virus through our community so that when you guys want to come out, it's fine for you to come out because we can't infect you because we're not going to pick it up in the supermarket because we've been staying inside for five months when we didn't need to be, you know, my husband and I had this back before the lockdown anyway, so it's kind of a little bit irrelevant. But if we hadn't, I'd have been saying, let me out. I'm really happy to get it. And then in three months when I want my shielding brother to come out, um, because he's got cancer and I want my parents to come out because they're elderly. They haven't got comorbidities, but they're elderly. I want them to be able to come out more safely because I know it's gone through the healthy population and we're all good now. So come out. Happy days. Um, but they haven't given us the opportunity to be able to, be able to play our part in doing that. And that is wrong as well. Hmm. And I think what's scary is that, um, now we might get another enforced lockdown coming into mm. the autumn. And Second how half. do those of us who don't want to do it, how do we get round it? It's, 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 it's horrific, isn't it? And we're going to get it, not because there's going to be an increase in deaths. I mean, the death curves are just, as a mathematician, they're just absolutely beautiful to look at because they are, anyone who knows anything about FARS law, epidemics follow FARS law, which is they follow a normal distribution it's a skewed normal distribution so it has a, a fast spike it goes up really rapidly and then it goes out into this long tail you can see just putting covid graphs by country on the internet and, and you'll see it and the fabulously remarkable thing is they look absolutely identical by country it doesn't matter if they didn't lock down like sweden and brazil or if they did lock down like denmark and peru neighboring countries there will be um slightly different spikes if you're a more open country like the UK and the US so you've got New York and London and Berlin so you've got travel hubs you're going to have higher spikes uh, because you've, you've got more people coming into your country so you've got more chance of it being brought in from many many different areas um, the earlier I guess you get it before the virus has had the chance to mutate and settle down, which is what it's shown every sign of doing at the moment, because it's just not killing people anymore in anything like the way it was. You really have got more chance of being killed in a car accident right now um, than you have of, of dying from COVID. And of course, it's affected different countries differently. Um, I think there's evidence in the vitamin D argument, and I think it's one of the reasons why New Zealand and Australia did so well relatively that you were coming out of your summers when the vitamin D levels were at their highest. We were coming out of our winters when vitamin D levels were at their lowest. Um, and we know, I can show you the evidence to show that the uh, UK um, and the US are deficient in vitamin D. And we don't supplement, we don't get enough sun, we don't take it. And the evidence of poor outcomes from COVID if you're low in vitamin D um, are actually quite strong. So there is lots of evidence as to why the spikes are different, but that the curves are following exactly the same pattern. And I saw an immunologist quite early on on Twitter when people were saying, oh, it's exponential, we're all going to die, it's the most frightening thing I've ever seen. And she just kept her calm and she just kept replying to every one of them saying, check out Farzor, check out Farzor. <laughs> and, and she's right, they follow a pattern. This, this virus wasn't suddenly going to be any different to any other, they follow 
a pattern. They follow the spike and then they have this long tail. Viruses don't, they can't keep killing people. Otherwise they, they die out. It's not in their interest to kill the host because then uh, kill the host so quickly that they don't send it off to someone else and that's it. Virus is gone. Um, that's not in the virus's interest. So they do mutate, weaken, change in various ways. And that's very much what we've been seeing in this one. Uh, we might see increases in, in cases, which is what we're seeing at the moment. And that's purely a function of testing. The more you test, the more you'll find. And we're seeing an increase in cases. But again, there are some beautiful graphs on the internet where people have done a mirror image across the x-axis. So they've got cases above. So they've shown that cases were going right down the cases are now going up now that we've got the time and the ability to test more people. And yet they've put on the mirror the death rate and it shows that the deaths went up, but then the deaths went down and the deaths are not going up again. So yeah, cases might go up if you test more, but deaths are not going up. Uh, bad outcomes are not going up. So what's your point? Mm-hmm. Are you really going to carry mm-hmm. on shutting down the entire universe because you're doing more tests and you're finding what you're looking for in the tests? We've lost the plot. Yeah. And then, mm-hmm. and then it comes down to what happens when the next virus comes along. Do we do the same thing? And then, but we won't be around because we will have completely destroyed the economy. People, people don't don't seem to see what's coming down the line. I mean, I I started I, I did the entrance exam in maths to Cambridge, but I then switched to economics with the maths options um, because I liked the applied aspect of mathematics. So essentially, I've, I've done economics. Um, you don't need to have done economics to understand how financial systems work. So when somebody says, oh, there's a big drive in the UK at the moment to get people back to work, and then you've got people saying, oh, why should we go back to work? We like working at home. Um, we can get out of bed an hour later. We don't have to commute, and we save loads of money, and it's it's really nice. Um, yeah, it's, it's nice for so long until you realise that actually you're lonely and your performance has suffered mm. because you do spark ideas off your colleagues and there is a joy in being around other people and interacting. We are human. We are social beings. And, and people will hopefully realise that in time. But you've got people, oh, why should they go back to work? Um, yeah, okay, fine. Don't go back to work. So then the train driver loses her job. And then the train driver sacks her cleaner and her dog walker because she can't afford those anymore. And then the cleaner and the dog walker have less income coming in. And then all of them spend less on clothes and less on food and less on eating out and less on the cinema and then all of those people in those industries get less income and then they spend less on everything else and just as you can domino an economy up so you can domino an economy down and that's where we are just at the start of at the moment and the GDP in the UK is down 20% already which is the biggest drop ever seen in the history of recording GDP forget the crash in the 90s forget the 2008 crash this is in a different league again and then you've got people on Twitter saying, oh, why should I go back to work? I'm, I'm fine working at home. Yeah, you're fine working at home until your triple lock pension is under threat, until all your savings are gone, until until it impacts you in some way. But why be selfish and wait until it impacts you in, in some way? Look, you want everyone else wearing a mask. Why not have everyone else doing their bit to help everyone else not avoid their job? Why is this philanthropy or whatever? Mm. Whatever the word Louise used was, you know, doing it for the greater good. Well, why does that apply to staying in and following some set of guidelines, but it doesn't apply to helping out and trying to spend money to help people not lose their job? What we're being selective in what we're taking on board. Hmm. Maybe it has to hit us personally before we realise 
what a mess we're in. I, I don't think people have got any idea how big a mess we're in right now. I think you hit really the, you've heard of the Rosetto effect, you know, and that's about the social connections and how good that is for your, for your health. And that's um, based on that study in Pennsylvania about the Italian migrants that, um, you know, had that community um, spirit and how good their, their rates of heart disease were because they first generation migrants and um, they would eat their meals together and cook and prepare and be social. But their children went to college so then they moved away and, yeah, and how that impacted on the community. So you're right, I'm, I'm a remote worker, so I'm doing the online teaching and I miss those corridor conversations with my colleagues. And, mm. yeah, I work at home only because that's remote working for me, online teaching. But, um, yeah, I can still go down to the local street to get my, you know, my street food and still go out. But you're right, it's the cleaning lady, it's the dog walker, it's the sandwich shop, um, you know, for the people in central London, you know, going to get their coffee at Costa, um, if you choose to drink Costa coffee. Cafe, Cafe, Cafe Nero. Um, All the independents, you know, help out the people whose business is just about to go under. I know. You make such a good point there because it's not, it's not just the interaction in the corridor. It's, it's touch. Now, remember Mm. vividly, Dr. Malcolm Kendrick is one of my heroes because the the way that he thinks. Um, I mean, you say I dissect things, but I dissect things in a very mathematical, analytical kind of way. But the way that he thinks just blows me away. The level that he gets to of, of questioning things. And he works a great deal with the elderly in primary care. And he uh, also caught COVID very early on, was working in care homes. Um, so he's, he's with the vulnerable population. And he was one of the first to blog and write about yes. the catastrophe that was just about to happen yes. in care homes. Um, mm. One of the most memorable things I think Markham has ever said to me is that when he has people either come into the surgery or more typically he sees the elderly in their own environment, either with home visits or care home visits, he would always make a point of shaking their hand. And he said, quite often, somebody would jump and you suddenly realise you are the only person who has touched them in the last two weeks or 10 days or months mm. um, and that they just are not getting that human connection. And animals huddle together humans need to have that human touch and that human connection and human interaction and one of the most heinous things i mean it's in law in wales you have to be more than two meters apart by law from anyone who is not in your own household i don't even know where to start on that i have to say i have been hugging people that i've been seeing in recent times um if 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 that's what they want as well and it's it's been incredibly important for us to do that and that to me is, is far healthier than this nonsense of saying two metres apart. I mean, people have been at funerals for Christ's sake. Mm. Two metres apart. And if there's ever a time you need a hug and you need to be crying on somebody's shoulder, you've got women in childbirth not able to hold their partner's hands because they won't have anyone in the hospital who doesn't absolutely have to be there. My dad had a pretty awful fall a couple of days ago. And it was outside the front door. The paramedics came. They were marvellous. Um, helped him up, check to the best of their knowledge that nothing was broken and then took him off to hospital. My mum wasn't allowed to go with him. And my dad isn't, um, he, he's got some, um, dementia. He's, he's not great at knowing what is going on. And my mum is the one that knows what's going on. 
So normally you'd be able to say to mum, okay, so what happened? Did, did he have stitches? Was he x-rayed? Um, how did they check it was just a sprained wrist? What happened? What exactly have they done? He hasn't got a clue what was done um, because he comes home from hospital and, and that's it. He, he's just back from hospital and nobody knows what he's supposed to be doing and what has happened. And mum wasn't allowed to go with him. So there's poor dad if he sat there in hospital not even knowing why he was there. He wouldn't remember that he'd just fallen over. He'd be thinking, well, my wrist hurts. Why does my wrist hurt? Mm-hmm. It, it's just evil what we're doing. I, I can't yeah. see that we can't see that this is the cruelest thing we have ever done to ourselves. Yeah. And I didn't think we were going to talk about this. We no. We were going to talk about dark <laughs> But it gets to the point about your criticality. It's about the evidence. So where is the evidence? And we, again, you know, we're in this policy, what I say, a policy vacuum, that so the, the politicians, by virtue of the law, the public health law, the emergency acts, and, you know, that that's their policy. It's in law. It's enshrined that the benevolence, we're going to take this in your best interest. We need to shut this down. And this is... This, this is for the greater good, as you said, and I always think of that um, Shaun of the Dead movie where they're talking about the greater good. And this is this is the thing that governments take the position of this is in your best interest. So whether you are eating thirty percent total fat, and that by you know by virtue of that you will now you thou shall eat fifty five percent carbohydrate. This is this is what we've been inflicted. I suppose that's one way inflicted upon us. But coming out of this, as you said, um, I have to, you know, what really resonated was Malcolm McKendrick's blog, as you said, you know, here he was actually in the care homes on the front line, seeing the trickle down, the downstream, using the public health metaphor, the downstream effect of this of this particular lockdown situation, that our most vulnerable populations were the ones at greatest risk. You may not have caught up what's happening in Melbourne, in Australia, um, one family has been linked to the current second, what they're calling the second wave, and certainly um, Victoria, um, the state of Victoria, has contributed to what, what we're up to now, 600 deaths in Australia. So one family mismanaged in quarantine has been, um, is responsible for this, um, this second wave that is now um, yeah, 600 deaths, and most of those have been in our care homes as well. And you, it's just, just an indictment that Australia didn't learn from the UK. You know, what happened to the most vulnerable? Where is the benevolence, you know, to, to protect um, the greater good of our elderly population? But as you said, you know, the vulnerable were at most at risk. And did we did we have a right or responsibility to protect those at, at risk? We did, and, and that's the one thing where Sweden says our numbers in Sweden would be even better if we've got that bit right as well, nobody got it right. right. And right. When people say a lot more people would have died if we hadn't been in lockdown, I say mm. to them the ultimate population in lockdown was our care homes. Nowhere was more locked down than a care home. Those poor guys could not go anywhere, and we killed more people in care homes than we killed anywhere else. You know, the, the Sorry, but what we found certainly the um, in the Australian model was because we have this casualisation of work. So we had casual workers going from care home to care home because they're casual um, personal carers. They were perhaps the ones, you know, we had this casualisation. And we also have this, I don't know if it's unique to Australia, but we have this motivation where we have to go to work sick. 
So we have this responsibility and the onus maybe it's a health professional thing. I can't let my mates down, my team down. If I don't turn up, then that's going to put a burden on the rest of the healthcare team. So I'm going to turn up with my sniffle, which happened to be COVID. Mm. And that's how, you know, there's a spread um, vicariously through that. Yeah. Well, there is a, but, but there's a connection between the two things that we're talking about, COVID and diet. I mean, there's a number of connections. One is, as you alluded to there, Louise, why do we trust them on, oh, you're doing this for the greater good, when we don't trust them on the 55% carbohydrate, which goes back to maybe that's why our side has been questioning this more. But also, why are they not giving us stronger messages in terms of what we can do to ensure that we don't have a bad outcome? You know, one of the people doing this most in the UK is Dr. Asim Malhotra, and he's getting so much stick for it. It's like, so it's okay to say to people, um, go outside and wear a mask because you'll get some protection, but it's not okay to say to people, you absolutely must make sure right now you have got good vitamin D levels and do anything you can to not have a BMI over 40. And you can actually reduce your risk unbelievably quickly. You can reduce your risk in a week. Yeah. You really can. In one week, you can actually lose 5% of your body weight. And a lot of people do when they start a low-carb diet or a real food diet or anything, low-calorie diet. I really don't care right now. If you've got a BMI over 40, there has never been a more important time to get your BMI down and to keep getting it down. And if, if you did nothing else other than say, well, okay, I've looked at the Italian data. This looks really scary. I've got a BMI over 40. I'm now going to be in lockdown. We didn't know we were going to be in lockdown for five months. Um, we've got some people in our online club who are 30 pounds down after uh, two to three months, 100 days, I think one of them is 30 pounds down. I mean, that person has just absolutely taken themselves out of the, the bad outcome situation from COVID, aside from the fact the virus has, has moved on and you're getting it at a, a later date and all the rest of it. But why are they not? giving us those messages. The UK have come out saying, oh, better health programme. Um, and it's the same old, same old. It's the eat badly plate. The Prime Minister is trying to give us the impression that you can diet your way out of an obese situation. And I can't see him looking much different to how he looked when he caught the virus, to be honest. And yet if any of us have got our hands on him and said, right, real food, managed carb, low carb, whatever, real food is going to end up being low carb if you eat the right ones. Um, we could have had him 30 pounds down now already. There's so, if you, if you really want to do the right thing by people and you really are saying we've got the greater good in mind and everyone's best interest in mind, then start being the hell honest about obesity and diet and vitamin D and being optimally nourished as this virus carries on living among us. Yeah. And I totally agree. And I think we're never going to get that whilst the big food companies and pharma companies are backing the politicians because they're going to they're going to have a big sway because they've got all the financial backing to do that. Yeah. And I know that Zoe has had the privilege of meeting Belinda Fetke and Gary Fetke when we were at um, at low carb um, Breckenridge back in uh, 17 and um yeah there was a tweet I think or a post from from Belinda where she was sort of you know again championing the the relationship between the the food producers and certainly the religious ideologies that come from i suppose mm. it's all that health health cleansing and health washing and of the um 
yeah, certainly of the, the vegetarian movement. Yeah. So that's Kellogg's. Yeah, we know the Beckys really well. In fact, they were due yeah. to be with us right now. They were going to come to us on the way back from the meat conference that was going on in Scandinavia, and they've stayed with us before. And we um, last time they were in Europe, we headed over to Mallorca just to see them. So um, we we see as much of those gorgeous guys as we possibly can. Um, and the work that Belinda has done in uncovering mm, amazing. Oh, the dietary guidelines that companies like Sanitarium, the Seventh Day Adventist, the, the whole plant-based agenda, religious agenda, it's been unbelievable. It's been one of the biggest investigations and exposes that anyone has done in, in this whole field of, of nutrition and, and science. So how do we then go to, um, you know, the swings and roundabouts? And then we, we get to the Eat Lancet. Obviously, that's that's a big thing. But then we have, you know, those movies, those those mockumentaries or the documentaries like, um, you know, Game Changers, where we get these shielded messages, you know, wrapped up in this very clever marketing. I mean, and again, it's about the criticality and, and that's where your presence, say, on Twitter, it makes you obviously an open target. But, you know, thanks for taking one for the team. <laughs> Um, but it it really it really gets to the questioning like if Belinda hadn't come out and said hey there's a link here yeah. um, how does the average Joe on the street get to get to this this wokeness of of being able to question and they don't and I think it's another connection between the diet world and and the COVID world that my astonishment at how little people question has has really opened my eyes up to the whole nutritional. Um, what we're trying to do here, if indeed we are trying to do it. I mean, I, 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 it, it, I don't plan ahead. When people say, oh, where do you see yourself in five years? I say, don't even ask me. I don't even know what I'm having for tea tonight. I am not a planner ahead. Um, I am a lastminute.com. I am, you know, even booking this is like, oh my goodness, you know, how can I book a week ahead? That's stressful. So I don't have an agenda. I'm not, I'm sure there are people in, in the low carb arena who are thinking, uh, Nina, for example, I want to change the dietary guidelines, the US dietary guidelines, which would then domino across the US. What a fantastic objective. That really would have global impact. And there'll be other people saying, I want to convert as many people as possible to realizing that the dietary guidelines are wrong. I don't have that kind of big agenda. And the COVID thing has made me realize I'm actually quite glad I don't have that big agenda because I would be, uh, I would be depressed right now. And I'm not depressed. As I said, I'm, I might have a, a narrow view of the world right now, but because my own world is good, I, I'm very much a firm believer of manage what you can manage, being in control of what you can be in control of. It's the Stephen Covey stuff, the circle mm-hmm. of influence and the circle of concern. Mm-hmm. I know that if I try to set my circle of concern bigger than my circle of influence, it's just going to make me anxious. So why would you do that? Don't do it. Uh, silly. So I, I don't have that big, oh, unless I can convert the whole world to real food, low carb, I'm, I'm going to feel that I failed in some way or that is my mission statement. It's just not. Um, if, if anyone's open to listening, if anyone wants to hear what I've got to say, if anyone likes the dissections that I do, um, I'm really happy. I'm, I'm happy if I've enlightened someone in some way or inspired with someone in some way to do their own dissections, um, helped someone to get out of where I was when I was vegetarian and unhealthy and didn't know what I didn't know. Um, if you're there and you're open-minded, then I'm here and other people are here. Malcolm's here and you guys are here and and there's lots of us here. And when they discover one of us, and, and people come in from different routes, 
they discover Gary Klaus and then they find Nina and then they find Ivor, they find Ivor and then they find Asim and they find Prof Notes and then they find Eric Westerman. We, we all come in different ways, but then they discover that there's uh, quite a number of people. We don't think in the same way, otherwise we wouldn't be the people who we are. And that's part of the problem that our side faces. The dietitians, you hire one dietitian, you, you could hire any other dietitian, they all say exactly the same thing, unless they're the couple who are enlightened who are over in, in our side. And it's to our detriment in some ways that we're not speaking with one voice, that we are independents. It's like herding cats, because we're more fragmented as a movement than the other side is, and the other side is the 99.9% .9 already. So we're already in trouble kind of thing. Um, but if we say, okay, we're not trying to take over the 99%, we're not trying to convert the world, I mean, why the hell should we? But we're there for anyone who is who is looking, anyone who's open-minded. And then when they find us, they find a really friendly, really supportive, really community-oriented, really helpful, lovely bunch of people um, who share papers and help each other and do stuff for free. Um, we're just such a nice movement. I'm just so happy to be a part of. That's what I think we should be doing. If, if anyone's open and looking, we're here. It's, don't. Why should we go out and convert people who want to count calories? If you want to count calories, count calories. If you want to stay inside because your government says stay inside, then stay inside. We've all got choices. I'm actually happy if you're if you're making some independent choices, even if they're not the ones that I'm making. But mm. just don't be a sheep. You know, please for your own sake. Um, just don't be a sheep. Just give it some thought. Oh, but hell, if you want to be a sheep, then be a sheep. But know that sheep don't live a great life and they get herded up and killed and put on the plate. So, um, <laughs> at least on our plates. <laughs> yeah, on yeah. our plate. Well, what I'm, I don't get a lot of lamb here, so I'm really <laughs> hankering for a nice, juicy loin chop right now. So, so see yeah. them out the window, actually, just about. Oh, so, thank you. Thank yeah, you. They've they got the field, but that's my local food. It's uh, it's not lentils. Yeah, so fresh and local. That's and seasonal. So um, yeah, but I was just going to get back to the point where it was about this binary, and I think that's really part of that community connection. And that's obviously you know we're on the lockdown metaphor, where we have this community, and the community obviously embraces the spectrum. So there is obviously the spectrum where you're sort of saying from real food to low carb to keto to carnivore, that it seems to be obviously appreciative of of being able to say, well, what works for me may not work for you, but that's okay. And our journey takes, as you said, different paths and different different um, entry points, but we're still here because we have this value of health. You know, we value recovering from health, whether it's from type two diabetes. Um, obesity, all those autoimmune um, conditions, but we certainly have this commonality about reclaiming health through obviously this this um, you know just being critical of not being a sheep to the the eat well plate or the dietary guidelines. Yeah, and, and what else unifies us is that we've worked out we need to do this for ourselves. That we are actually the best people to take charge of our own health and. What I find more than anything when we have the joy of being at conferences and meeting fellow speakers and people who come up at conferences, it's so common that, that people will just chat to you in the social events and, and around the conferences. I mean, we go to ones that, that last more than one day, so we dine together and meet around the hotels and conference areas together. And most 
commonly people walk up to you and, and just volunteer their story and then whip out their phone or a wallet and show you photos of this is what I used mm-hmm. to look like and, and look at me now. And there's a lot of, of joy that goes with that, that the people have been able to fix things and feel great and isn't this marvellous. There's a lot of anger as well. And it's the anger mm. that is, is really interesting and useful because it's the anger that drives forward change because those people are angry. They're angry that for 40 years they were doing the wrong thing or 10 years, however long they were doing the wrong thing for. They were angry that they ended up with a BMI of 40 because they ended up addicted to the very carbohydrates that our government was telling us to eat. They're angry that they ended up with type 2 diabetes or they had heart disease or they had a cancer scare that possibly would have been avoided had they eaten in a much more natural and, and healthy way um, and, and they change as many people as the speakers do because their friends and family see them. And I know, um, I know people who are speaking at local groups. I have a guy who contacts me regularly. He's a um, religious chap in the southwest of England and he runs church groups and he's now running church diet groups. And we send him books to give away for free and we've given him access to my site so he can share the newsletters as and when he thinks they're important to share with his uh, his his flock, <laughs> his followers. And it's incredible that, that there are just people out there doing this and spreading the word and saying, hey, you don't have to believe the badly plate and the, the American dietary guidelines because they're really not going to serve you well. And I think the bottom-up rev- revolution is really healthy. Unfortunately, the top-down revolution is not looking good. We have a lot of faith in Nina being able to change or have an impact mm. on the 2020 dietary guidelines. I've just done a post on that. It's not looking like anything is going to change whatsoever. No. Um, just nothing. So we've had the scientific report come out and I think the actual shorter version of the guidelines that comes out later on this year is going to be same old, same old. Um, if anything, it's going to be more plant-based nonsense and more anti-fat nonsense, which is the way that the world is going. So... Uh, would have been great if we had the top-down uh, revolution, but it's not going to happen. So we just need to keep our little bottom-up revolution going. And I really do believe focus on anyone who's open-minded. Don't don't go picking fights with bodybuilding calorie counters on the internet. I mean, what the hell is the point of that? They'll believe that you should have protein shakes until the day. Oh. So let them. Who cares? Who cares? It's 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 so frustrating. I, I can, yeah. Sometimes it's just like put the phone down, Twitter down, just walk away. When you're reading a lot of that, um, a lot of that anger that comes from from those those threads of, which my way or the highway, and it's just like, well, everybody, everybody is different. Everybody, what works for you? If you want to do your your protein rich, yeah your protein which way then that's fine but i'm not a bodybuilder so yeah i I shared this little story i used to be on a couple of boards and there used to be so many black tie dinners and um you go along on your own sometimes i've got to take hubby andy with me but mostly you're on your own and so you're sat either side of two people you've never met and of course first thing you do is sit down shake hands hello how are you oh gosh to have that back again i tell you um, and then the, the first question usually is, what do you do? You know, that's, that's our first question to people. What do you do? And when I'd say to people, I, I read, write and talk about diet and health, um, the common reply was, oh my goodness, you'll be watching what I'm eating then. 
Um, and I used to get used to saying, I actually don't care what you eat. I care that you know what you should eat. Because I really don't. I really don't. If you want to sit next to me and say, I don't even like this black tie dinner, I'm ordering in a Big Mac, which is probably what Donald Trump would do. I don't care. That's your choice. You're a grown-up. That's why everything should be our choice as grown-ups, including whether or not to go out of the house. But I care that people know what they should eat. I care that people know the evidence, and I care that people know that 55% carbohydrate was never tested. It was never even known that it was safe, let alone that it was healthy. That's what I care about. Yeah. And what about, um, because I know you spoke about this at the PhD conference, about we've got this belief that we have to have fiber and we need the carbohydrates i mean i'm sure a lot of people don't even know what carbohydrates are but what about the fiber because you need that to get your colon working and you need the vitamins from your fruits and vegetables what do you say to that yeah i mean the the really simple answer is there's a great quote um from one of the american um official bodies the panel on macronutrients it's about a thousand page document or something on about two page 275, I think it is from memory, um, it says the uh, intake of carbohydrate needed is zero, provided enough fat and protein are eaten. So as soon as you've got it established that actually we need zero carbohydrate, we do not need to eat carbohydrate, we don't need to consume it. And then what I do in that fiber presentation, and all you've got to do is Google my name, Zoe Mm. Markham Fiber video, it will come up with a 30-minute version, which I gave at Breckenridge, or a 45-minute version, which I gave at the PHC, and it deliberately starts off with carbohydrates 101 because you're you're right, Jackie. People need to understand what carbohydrates are all about because when you realise that um, you've got simple um, monosaccharides, which is just single sugars, disaccharides, two sugars, polysaccharides, which is just many sugars, that's what carbohydrates are, and then fibre is a subset of the many sugars. It's the um, indigestible form of sugars. But as soon as you see it's a subset of carbohydrate, you immediately realise that it's non-essential, as in we have no requirement to consume it. Now, I actually think the whole fibre argument is being done as a post-rationalisation to try to justify why we need carbohydrates. Because having conceded that we actually do not need to consume carbohydrates, some dietitians still seem to think that we do. They haven't kind of caught up. But even official bodies will say, you don't need to consume carbohydrates. And even in the Prof Notes trial, it was conceded by the other side without any fight that we do not need to con- consume carbohydrates. As soon as you've conceded that, well, you don't need fibre because fibre is a carbohydrate, end of debate. Now, it gets more interesting than that, which is why I did the presentation of, well, why do they say that we need to have fibre? Um, and where actually do we get vitamins and minerals from? Because it isn't from plants. There are a couple of nutrients for which plants are quite good, vitamin C particularly. It's easier to get vitamin C from a yellow raw pepper than it is for raw liver, but it doesn't mean that you can't get vitamin C from raw liver. And there also is an issue that you need far less vitamin C if you're not consuming carbohydrates, because you need vitamin C and particularly B3 to to metabolise carbohydrates. So nutrition can get a bit more nuanced and complex. But if you're looking at a basic level of where do I find those essential fats, the complete proteins, the vitamins and minerals that we need to consume because they are essential, they are essentially found in animal foods. And and that's the the hard truth that I did not want to discover as a vegetarian. And I could have stopped there and just said, I'm sorry, I don't want to hear it. 
it doesn't fit with my narrative. My confirmation bias is I don't want to eat animals. I'm, I'm not listening to this. Um, but I couldn't do that as a, as a mathematician, scientist, anal seeker of what is right and what is wrong. I just, I just couldn't do it. Yeah. The, the cognitive dissonance was obviously in, for some people, as we see out in the Twitter sphere is obviously as wide as the Grand Canyon. That's what I try and say, you know, your cognitive dissonance between your reality and what is the evidence is, is so far apart. Yeah. And and we get that entrenchment, right? So we're entrenched in our worldview. And if you start chipping away at that, my whole little kingdom and empire and, you know, my whole worldview starts to crumble. Yeah. And, And my dad did say, I told you so. Um, which was probably the least I deserved after he'd um, had all the years of me being veggie. Um, my husband didn't say that. He was far nicer. He just said, oh, that's going to be really helpful that I don't have to cook two meals every night. Um, this is good news. But I was wrong. I, I had to admit I was wrong. And I think that that's and that there's been many people in obviously in the in the real food movement that have have you know come out. And as you've mentioned about your work with um with Professor Noakes, you know he was there on video on that very famous scene of him ripping out his textbook. You know, and he was wrong. And you know that kind of humbleness that comes with you know what I believed you know in the for the greater good. You know at that time. And I suppose don't be too hard on yourself now is, well, that at that time, that was my belief, but now I believe this. And it's not uncommon in our field either. I mean, Nina was vegetarian yeah. and Sean Coxton yeah. and Chris Cresser, apparently Ted Naiman, I didn't realise that one until Oh, <gasps> no yeah. way. Yeah, yeah, I well, where's he going to get his two grams of protein from? So he was. I mean, he, he clearly he clearly isn't now, but I, I did pick that up. I was on another podcast with someone recently. And she'd interviewed Ted and that had come out. I'm sure I'm right on that. And, and Ted yeah. will tell me if I'm wrong or something. But, yeah, a lot of us have come from the background of crikey. I didn't realise just how wrong I'd got it. Yeah. And being vegetarian for a long time, I mean, we've interviewed mm. two people that have been 27 and 30 years vegetarian but have changed, changed back, changed away. And that's the ability of saying, well, I thought I I thought it was right at the time. Now at I'm the not time, sure. I'm sure. going to try something else. Mm. And it seems to be what our politicians can't do. They can't say we were wrong. We've got it wrong. But, but never mind. You know, never but mind. We got it wrong. But it was interesting that you know the way to you were saying about about how the policy you know in filling this policy void and moving forward with how can we protect those that are most vulnerable with the BMI of over forty those that are most at risk and certainly after you said about Boris's episode with the virus he was a perfect advocate to obviously think about health and he comes out with the bicycle policy you know those bicycle vouchers which the site apparently crashed overnight day that is just like oh how to fill the policy void but Zoe you know here you are you've you've really your contribution and um, you're making the point about, you know, if you can bring this criticality to, to the, you know, to people to give them the choice to, to give them the tools to think. Well, all I can say is like, thank you so much for your contribution. You know, just making people think is obviously, you know, that's your legacy. Oh, thank you. That's very kind. Thank you. How can people get in contact with you if they want to? 
Um, Twitter is probably the best way, actually. It's the only one I'm on. I don't do Facebook and LinkedIn and Instagram. I've, I've got an Instagram, but I just don't go into it. So Twitter, at Zoe Harkham, I'm on. Um, my main website is zoeharkham.com. And that's probably it, actually. There's no point sending me a message on Facebook. I wouldn't see it for about a year. And I do get loads of messages, actually, so I can't always get back to everyone. Um, I do have to be honest. I get way more mail than I can ever really reply to. But if if you really need to get in touch with me, hopefully it, it usually uh, is possible. So we like to sort of um, leave off with our guests in asking them the top three things that they would recommend if they were starting on their real food journey. It's hard to say anything other than the three principles that I just say all the time, actually. So number one, eat real food, because not everyone in this field does. Some people think it's okay to have something that's in a bar if it's got one gram of carbohydrate, and that's not okay in my view. It's not going to do you any favours. Number two, choose that food for the nutrients it provides, and that requires you to start looking on things like nutritiondata.com, the, the US All Foods database. Um, start looking for yourself and compare 100 grams of red meat with 100 grams of kale and see for yourself which is most nutritious and then start making the right choices. And then um, really look at how often you eat um, because grazing, a lot of us come from the background of grazing because that's pretty much what the government guidelines tend us towards because we get so damn hungry having cereal and fruit juice and whatever for breakfast, toast and honey for goodness sake. You're going to be hungry two hours later so you're just eating the whole time and it is not healthy. Um, to be eating that often. So I, I'd stick with those three principles. I just think if the whole world could adopt three principles like that, um, and fine, if you end up ignoring number two and you go down a plant-based route, as we've said, that's your choice. Um, it's not right, but that's your choice. Mm. That's a really great, yeah, that's a really great summary to, um, to finish off this wonderful episode, which covered a lot of ground, um, but certainly there, there are Collaries, is that the right word? Collaries, collaries between our um, our current situation that we're finding ourselves in, and um, and certainly your contribution to the nutrition um, epidemiology, and um, it's been a really great pleasure having you on the show. Thank you very much for having me. It's been really fun. Thank Thank you. you. Thank you for coming. Well, Jackie, that was such a great episode and really timely because we need to be thinking critically at these times. Yeah, I I definitely think so. I mean, I don't know the ins and outs of all of it, but it's definitely making me think all the different information that's coming in about what do we do if they impose another lockdown and, you know, we're going to be guided by law, but you know, how how do we reconcile that with how we personally feel is sometimes a bit of a challenge. And certainly that was highlighted by Zoe and she was maintaining those those social connections and those social connections are so important for us and for our health. And that is, yeah, certainly, you know, unquestionable, especially the most vulnerable, as she said, about the aged. We mentioned those people that um, have mental health and um, certainly the most vulnerable of our population have been the, at the most risk. And they're the ones that, you know, we were thinking about our policy is, you know, the benevolence. You know, where are we looking after these people and whose best interests are we are we trying to protect? Yeah. 
And certainly, um, you know, she really highlighted those tools that we need to think critically about, you know, the information that we have. And it's not just because we saw a podcast or we read a blog or, you know, we saw a documentary that we need to think who, who and how is this serving me. Yeah. And who benefits from, from the information that's being given, I think is always an important question to ask yourself. As always, you know, in the show notes, we'll have the links as, um, as Zoe's presentations that um, you and I saw at the Public Health Collaboration Conference last year and um, her other works that she was mentioning about as well. So they're fabulous resources that, um, yeah, incredible, incredible resources that um, we'll have on the show notes. And I know, Jackie, um, a great highlight for me was um, at the conference where I mentioned about meeting Zoe in the ladies' loo um, in the line, line up at the ladies' loo. She was mentioning about, um, you know, people coming up to her. And um, she was mentioning about, you know, the after-conference, you know, get-togethers with all the participants. And I walked over and my my husband, Andrew, was standing with her husband, um, Andy, and, um, yeah, it was actually really interesting to sort of find the two husbands um, standing together there with their, um, obviously, their academic wives and having a conversation with her, her Andy, and both of them were saying that they were carrying the bags for their, for their smart women. <laughs> so, um, yeah, that was one of my, my other Zoe moments was, you know, standing there um, with her. So, and, yeah, and that's part of the, the community, you know, that we can actually have these um these laughs together and yeah. Um, yeah i know that she's certainly missing it and yeah we're, we're all missing missing that human contact at this time yes definitely so if you want to find the show notes you can go to fabulouslyketo.com forward slash podcast forward slash zero zero five It would be great if you could support us through Patreon. Go to patreon.com forward slash fabulously keto and you can choose the monthly amount you wish. Can you recommend a guest we can interview? If you can, click on the link in the show notes to send us your recommendation. Follow us on social media. Our Facebook page is called Fabulously Keto. Or follow us on Instagram, fabulouslyketo1. Did you enjoy the show? Let us know that you listened by tagging us in your Insta story or Instagram post using the handle fabulouslyketo1 and the hashtag TFKP. All the links are on the website and in the show notes. If you haven't subscribed to the podcast, click the subscribe button. Reviews help us to be found and reach new listeners. Please leave a review of our show on your preferred podcast listening platform. We appreciate you taking the time and read them all. Disclaimer. The information in this podcast is for informational and educational purposes only. Nothing in this podcast can be taken as advice. Whether our guests are doctors, healthcare professionals or not, they're only sharing their own opinions and stories And this does not constitute a doctor-patient relationship. It's always best to seek professional medical advice should you wish to make any changes to your current medication or treatments. Also speak to your own doctor if you have any concerns about your health or you wish to make lifestyle changes 
especially if you're taking medication. 